cancer show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> And welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary, and I am a 17-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. And my name is Annie Goodman, journalist and young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. On tonight's show, self-expression and empowered survivors. Join us as we welcome young adult cancer survivors, writers, bloggers, and soapbox e-activists Lonnie Horn, Jody Shager, and Eman Conrad to share the secrets to their success of balancing angst with truth and self-expression. Stupid Cancer Chief Chica Officer Erica Malat in the Survivor Spotlight. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, a nonprofit organization that empowers young adults affected by cancer online at stupidcancer.org. And a Stupid Cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and the Stupid Cancer Show as we come to you live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in New York City. Hello. Hello, Annie and Kenny. Hello. Hello, Matthew. How are you? Doing well. What's going on? Oh, you know, same old, same old. Same old, same old? Yeah, Angelina had a mastectomy, so everyone's going bananas. Yeah, I think that happened last week, right? It did. Well, the mastectomy was <laughs> before, but no, it the news broke. public. That would be the big news of the week. Yeah. Do we know, so. do we know how long she went in between? The, that's what I was confused. I heard she started, like, in February, like in February right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She started the process in February for the... Procedures. I know what's unclear is when she knew she had this mutation, right. the BRCA1 mutation, which I have, which is unpleasant. I heard that it was after her mom died. Well, could have been. I, you know, she didn't. That was unclear to me. You know, that's up to her whether she when she wants to reveal when right. it was that she, you know, had the testing done. But it's very smart of her to have the testing done, given that her mother passed away very young of ovarian cancer. Right. And, uh, you know, it's a reality I have to deal with. I'm at high risk for ovarian cancer myself with a BRCA1 mutation. Unfortunately, I got breast cancer because I didn't have no one in my family, thank God, had ever had cancer before. So I was the first person 
for the mutation to manifest in disease. But uh, she had a very intelligent doctor who had her tested. Uh, one of the misnomers of the BRCA1 mutation is that it's a Jewish thing. It's not. It's a, Although she's half Jewish. Is she? Yes. Okay. Well, you know, it's the Eastern European background that it typically appears in. And while Jews are at a much higher rate for the people who do get the mutation, it's not just Jews who have it. Um, I think the biggest misperception that is out there, and I don't know the answer, maybe you know mm-hmm. the answer, about how the risk increases by having the, the gene but by how much does the risk increase? And they were throwing all these other like she she went from a so, 20% to an 87% chance of getting. But that's not true, is it? No, those numbers are inflated. No, they're not. I had an 80. I had the ex, almost the exact same numbers as Angelina Jolie. So I like to joke that I'm from the same gene pool as her. Um, my risk for breast cancer was also 87%. And but is that over your lifetime or in the next yeah. year or two? No, it's over your lifetime. Right. But when you have the BRCA mutation. Breast cancer tends to happen very young, so you'll be in the 30 to 40 year old range. You could even be in your 20s. It depends on your family history, and you know screening and things like. That. I mean, not that you get screening to avoid it, but you know it depends. Um, since I'm the youngest person to get it, they say that you generally have to start screening 10 years before the person before you had it. So who you know, if I had you know a child naturally, had a girl. She would have to start, you know, if she, you know, God forbid, this is all very hypothetical, God forbid got the mutation, she should start getting screened at 20. But the question I would have is then, I mean, lopping off body parts to prevent that body part from getting cancer and killing you seems a bit extreme. If you are predisposed to breast cancer because you have the gene Mm -hmm. and you are, are meticulous about getting tested, could they not just continue to do small lumpectomies or small biopsies and and eliminate it before it gets really bad? Not necessarily, because another thing that's linked with breast cancer, so so there's a few things. So so when you you have the BRCA1 mutation, you also are at high risk for the type of breast cancer I had, which is called triple negative, and that is the genetic, the more genetic type of breast cancer, which is highly aggressive and doesn't respond to as many treatments. And you might, so say, for example, you got, you know, you would get a breast MRI. You probably wouldn't rely on just mammograms. It's not always, especially for someone her age, it wouldn't always be the most reliable. So you would probably get breast MRIs and get biopsies and things like that. But let's say she does get an early stage, whether it be stage zero, stage one breast cancer. It's so, it's so subjective because, she could get a clean MRI, but then it could start coming the next month. And then five months later, when she would get her next mammogram, it could be bad. So it, it's not a slow-growing cancer No, when it, when BRCA, it decides to go crazy. BRCA1 breast cancers tend to be extre- significantly more aggressive than a non and this is this is the And this is not everybody. This is just the lump of everybody, of, you know, of how it tends to be. The other issue is ovarian cancer. The screening sucks for ovarian cancer, and ovarian cancer is very dangerous once you get it because of the proximity to your organs. So you, as of this moment, like I keep hoping there's going to be some sort of other treatment, but she's eventually, she is going to have to have her ovaries taken out, and she has said that she's going to. And um, the big part of it is that the screening for ovarian cancer sucks. You get 
ultra, it's kind of achy, but you, transvaginal ultrasounds, which is what they give you when you're pregnant. And um, that's generally the best way to do it. And there's a blood test. And the blood test is very finicky. It can be off for a bunch of reasons. You can get a lot of false positives. And again, it could be a more aggressive form of cancer where it sucks that this is the option. I've heard the I've heard the people coming and saying, well, you know, what if you're a high risk for colon cancer? You're going to get your colon removed. It's so different because your risk for breast cancer is so high. Her ovarian cancer risk is 50%. My risk is 40% up until I'm 70 years old. Right. So, it, all right. So is, is the stigma then, now that we've instilled panic in every woman in America under 40, that this is really only like, Five percent of all breast cancer, or one percent of all breast cancer, it's, or it's a very low percent. I, I know it's under ten. I think it's like a five percent of breast cancers are BRCA one. It's a very low, and it's a very low population thing. Um, it's it's getting okay. Breast cancer under forty is very rare. BRCA one is even more rare in that, and then triple negative within that is very rare. So, but is it worth it for women? as a health risk measure to get tested for BRCA1? It depends on your family history. If you have a family history of... What if you don't know your family history, just in general? Like we get the chicken pox vaccine, right. should we get screened for BRCA1? Um, so let's say hypothetically you were adopted from Eastern Europe. You have no family history of any diseases because you were, were that's how you came to this country or came to your family. Maybe. Um, if you were someone who you know your family history, like in my case, which is what's the most screwed up, is that I would not be a candidate to be tested for BRCA1. But let's say you're someone who had a first-degree family member who had breast cancer under 50 or someone who had ovarian cancer under, I think, 50 or 60, or if they had both, you and then you're supposed to get t- if they have not been tested whether they passed away or didn't know to get tested because it was a long time ago um you would it would be advised to get tested but i'm just saying like like a person is smart and people are stupid if we mandated every woman get tested for BRCA1 yes it would open the floodgates of people being but would it reduce the risk of people being afraid if they're in that category and would it re- would it help push along the idea that it shouldn't cost you money to get tested. I mean, people shouldn't get tested unless a genetic counselor is telling them they need to get tested. You can't just, like, go to Dwayne Reed and get a BRCA1 test. You will in, like, 10 years. If if the Supreme Court turns it, you know, makes it that way, you might be able to. But, you know, no gynecologist is going, you know, they'll hear you out on your family history and they'll, you know, if you're adopted, if your situation is you're adopted for Eastern Europe or whatever country it is you're from, from the United States, and you're concerned that you don't know enough about your genetic background, someone from that in that scenario might want genetic testing in general because they don't know what they might, what mutations they might, whether it be like Tay-Sachs or sickle cell anemia, whatever it might be, they might want genetic counseling in general. If you are someone who thinks that you're at risk, you should get genetic counseling. You should talk to your gynecologist. You should not, like, march into an oncologist's office and say, give me the BRCA1 test. You have to, Hopefully doctors will be smart about it and test the people who need to be tested. It's funny. When I tested, when I found out I had the mutation and, you know, I was diagnosed and certain treatment, had the mastectomy and everything, one of my friends ran out and, like, made her daughter test her because she had, like, a family member who had breast cancer. And, um, you know, it's just, 
hopefully doctors will be smart about it and test people who need to be tested. And that's why it sounds like it. I don't think Angela Jolie was trying to instill panic in people because she definitely made it made it known how rare it was. Uh, you but know, people panic situation. anyway. People panic anyway. And by the same time, she put a face, she took away the stigma of a mastectomy that it takes away your sexuality. And she said that it doesn't. Right. Which is true. And... You know, she did a lot of good. She brought more more people know what a BRCA1 mutation is now because of her. Right. So I give her a lot of credit for doing that. And it was took a lot of guts to come forward and tell her story. And she's a very private person. That's a very personal thing to share. So I uh, respect her decision. I'm glad she came out. I agree. I approve this. I was just playing. I was playing panicky American. Yeah. Just arguing with you. I agree with you. I'm yeah. Just playing panicky American. I don't hear what you're saying. All right. Well, we are excited to have our first guest here tonight. And I do believe, if I am, uh, she will correct me if I'm wrong, that this is actually her very first time on the Stupid Cancer Show after knowing her for six years. And I'm embarrassed to the universe and shamed in gracefully for that. You're shamed for many reasons. I am shamed for many reasons. Among others being that Erica Malott, our chief cancer chica, is a 15-year survivor of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Originally from California, she currently resides in Florida, married to Jason Malata, another young adult survivor who actually has been on the show. She'll hold that against me. Where she helped organize these uh, several super cancer events, and she's uh, been an invaluable volunteer to super cancer since the early days, and she served on the OMG steering committee for two consecutive years so far. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Erica Malata. Thank you. Welcome. That was a very lengthy intro, but I liked it. Uh-huh. Uh, it's all guilt-ridden. <laughs> I was going to start with, how dare you have Jason first, but I let it go. That's okay. That's okay. Well, we have more empathy for him than you. So. <laughs> well, all right. Well, all right. Now you're on the show. Uh, Eric yes. Reyes, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, well, let's just get started. Um, you are uh, almost as long a cancer survivor as I am. You hit 15 years, and I uh, would love to hear the Erica Reyes story. So, basically, I because was Because you were Erica Reyes when you were diagnosed, not Erica Malat. Right. I was Erica Reyes, not Erica Malat. I've only been Erica Malat for about almost two years now, but uh, at the time it was, yes, Erica Reyes, and I was... As my chart says exactly, nine years and nine months, I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Um, I'm one of those stupid cancer people that have had, you know, childhood leukemia, and then when we were done, I was a young adult. So then, you know, having to deal with young adulthood issues um, has been kind of an interesting path because I lost kind of like that last year or so of my childhood and then, you know, going to doctors and, you know, just doing all that fun stuff with medication and everything. And by the time it was done, I was about to start high school. So it was it was really interesting to kind of go through, you know, middle school and everything while, you know, my hair is short or no hair, um, all that fun stuff, basically. And how old were you again? Nine years and nine months. I like to throw that out there because it was on my chart exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> At least they were specific, I suppose. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and you have siblings? I do. I have one older sister and one younger sister. Actually, we're really, like, spread apart. My older sister was born in 1978. I was 1985, and my little sister, 1995. And she's actually graduating high school 
this year. So um, wow. I was actually, believe it or not, I was diagnosed. high school. It makes you feel old. I know. It makes me feel really old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of keep track of, like, my survivorship based on how old she is now. So it's kind of every time she becomes a year older, I know I've made it another year into remission because I was actually diagnosed uh, two weeks after she was born. So it kind of created a really hectic moment for my parents, you know, having You really wanted all the attention, didn't mm-hmm. you? I did. I was, you know, I couldn't figure out a way to, you know, get my parents' attention back to me. So I figured, you know, well, why not and get, you know, ALL? <laughs> <laughs> to get it. <laughs> so what's interesting about your story is that you're one of the individuals who had cancer as a in pediatrics and then dealt with late effects and we call it like, you know, it's the gift that keeps on giving type of stuff. People tend to think, well, you're done, right? Go home, get on with your life. And, and that doesn't typically happen. And when stupid cancer came along in 2007, back then it was called I'm Too Young for This, you were one of the first, uh, you, you and Jason, I think you were dating at that time, but you were just two of the early adopters of the organization, if you could refresh my memory. Yeah, um, I do remember only, God, I don't remember how many people there were in the organization to begin with. I just remember the way we found it was actually uh, we, Jason and I met through a support group through American Cancer Society to begin with, and we were really one of the few young adults uh, in the support group. And, um, you know, that had begun with me, basically the way you said it, you know, oh, you're done, go home. And all through high school, I was just desperate to connect with someone who was going through what I was going through. And, you know, it was, it was I didn't know what to do with it because I wanted to, you know, just get through high school, deal with normal life. But it was hard because, you know, no one understood why I would just suddenly get sick. And when I was done with high school, I finally decided, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to see what's out there. started looking up on the Internet and found the support group, which only found like, two other people, and one of them being Jason. Um, we actually wound up connecting through that, and then, you know, lo and behold, we started dating. <laughs> and then we kind of abandoned that group because there were no other young adult survivors. And Jason actually was the one who introduced me to stupid cancer, or I'm too young for this at the time. So I remember, because I Facebook messaged you, <laughs> when <laughs> Facebook was also very new, and asked if we could go see your office because we thought, like, it was like, oh, my God, like, it's Matthew Zachary. Can we go see the office? And it was going to be so cool. It was my first time to New York City. And wouldn't it be awesome to go see the stupid cancer office as well? <laughs> and little did you realize that I was at a desk in an in an abandoned elevator shaft. And then he wasn't cool. And I, I wasn't cool in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it was, yeah, I will say I was pretty surprised. We were, um, first of all, amazed how much stuff you got into that one room. I mean... You were like the master of like Tetris, apparently. I mean, that was amazing. <laughs> no, my 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 uh, OCD uh, qualities came in very handy to uh, fit all that crap into the tiny room with one window. <laughs> right, and I remember when Jason and I were going up there looking for you. We walked into the first doors, and I remember looking at him and thinking, "Are we lost?" And he kind of looked, gave me the same look, and I finally said, "I'm like, so do we go through these doors? Is there like really an office here?" He's like. I think so. I hear talking. <laughs> and sure enough, there you were. 
So let's get into some of the uh, the young adult specifics here. So obviously you, you were insured through your parents when you were diagnosed. Mm-hmm. You are now, you went to college, and uh, you have your own insurance now? Or you, do you deal with, how often do you see doctors? You know, we, we, we try to, um, you know, squelch the idea that, oh, you're all done. You're just done. But what are you up to these days as far as, you know, consequences or side effects outside of having to deal with Kenny and I? <laughs> uh, the biggest one probably for me right now is probably insurance. Um, I ha- Believe it or not, since my diagnosis, I haven't needed to go to the hospital since, thank God. Um, but my insurance is, like, you know, astronomical. It's I can't believe it. I, I um it's something that I've been dealing with since I've been put on my own plan and at one point was paying $300 a month just for myself with barely any dental. Um, they would constantly fight me, like, on anything that I wanted to go see for a specialist just to do my own, like, you know, yearly checkup, which was what my oncologist recommended. I mean, sometimes they would decide to pay for it, and sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they would decide to pay for my labs. And sometimes they wouldn't. So it was constantly a battle with them. And, you know, I finally switched uh, health insurance companies. And, I mean, to bump it down a little bit, which is now $233 a month. But they have better dental, better insurance, and they fight with me a lot less than the previous company did. Um, I've been pretty fortunate not having as many side effects yet. Um, There's still some that they're really watching out for, like, you know, um, early menopause, um, uh, uh, osteopenia, stuff like that, especially because it runs in my family, so they're really watching me that. And then, of course, fertility issues. So that one they're kind of just seeing how it goes for right now because we're not ready to have kids, but they're starting to talk about it a little more. But um, these are some there's of the things I have. There's plenty of time for that later. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, there's some other things I still want to do, so I'm kind of – putting that one on the back burner. Well, I've met you guys both. You have guys have 100 years to worry about having kids. So one of the things I was wondering is, you know, I've read a lot about how a lot of times cancer survivors tend to, you know, gravitate towards each other as survivors because you have that mutual understanding of what it's like to have gone through treatment and you share some similar insecurities. What were, what was it like to date a survivor and what's it like being married to a survivor you know, both having your own separate, you know, not that you're both currently dealing with health issues, but you both, you know, both have had cancer and there's a lot of that comes with that. So what's it, is it a unique challenge? Uh, You know, what's it like for the two of you to kind of go through this together? It's actually pretty interesting. Um, It's it's hard to explain because when I, before I met Jason, I met other people who I kind of spoke with that had, um, uh, that has cancer and we're going through it or has survived it. And the biggest one I tell people is they're like, oh, it's probably so much easier just to date someone with cancer. And it's really not because my biggest thing is that assholes can still get cancer too. So, and which I found out because some of them would be, you know, like I, I thought, you know, they would understand. And it kind of still, like I had some guys that weren't interested in me when they found out that I might not be able to have kids. So, and they these guys? Too. Crazy people. <laughs> and so, you know, at that point I thought, you know, I thought for sure they'd understand. And with Jason, it just, I don't know, it just kind of clicked. Um, it is really, it's nice because sometimes I, when I, I am a warrior, like I'm definitely a warrior. And Jason will 
like agree to that 100%. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he's probably somewhere there nodding his head yes. But I I worry about stuff that could happen. If I worry about it coming back, even though it's been 15 years um, since my remission date. And he's definitely the level-headed one of the of the two of us. Like he'll call me down. He understands where I'm coming from. Like he because he's involved and because he has seen it, he's he's really helpful. Like he just ex- knows exactly where it's coming from. He knows, you know, if because like as, some of the issues I have is that you know with ALL you don't really have, or for my case anyway, I don't really have any scars. I don't have any indication of my cancer. So sometimes I'll just feel really lousy one day or just exhausted for no reason. And we'll be with friends or something. And he is great at like, you know, playing it as if it's, you know, not a big deal or, you know, just understanding that I need like a day to just like rest because if not, I'll really wear myself out and get sick. So it's interesting, but there are definitely some challenges to it. I mean, obviously because we both have to deal with our, you know, stresses of our yearly checkup, you know, he gets stressed out over it too. I get stressed out over it. Then I get stressed out about mine and he gets stressed out about mine. So there's still, I mean, it's really unique, but it's interesting because, uh, I mean, that's definitely how we met, but not why we, uh, like why we wound up getting married, obviously. So, but it's, it's, it's interesting because sometimes I, I, you know, I still stress over, like some of the same things that people have uh, issues with that are dating non-cancer survivors or non-cancer patients to this day, and I worry about that that he might have those issues. You know, like you know, what if he can have kids and I can't? And you know, it's you know, he says that's okay, but does he really mean that? Even though I know he does, but that's just me worrying in the back of my head, just telling me that. So you know, and sometimes I feel it, like you know, especially with the insurance, you know, being so expensive, you know, that's you know a big chunk of our income. You know, I feel bad because, you know, he has to deal with that. And he could, in my head, I'm always thinking, he could always date, he could have dated someone else who didn't have to deal with that, and it would make his life so much easier. So I feel bad because sometimes he's constantly reassuring me that, no, this is, it's okay, you know, and he does understand, which is nice, because then I'll get, like, all upset and, you know, stressed out, and he sits there and listens to me be a big crybaby about everything, and then, you know, the next day I'm okay, so... (laughs) Well, those that stress does not get any easier for anyone, whether you're dating a cancer survivor or someone who's never had cancer. It's just from meeting other people who've, you know, dated and gotten married and moved on with their lives, it's, you know, it's tough for everybody. And, you know, I give you guys a lot of credit. It's, it's great that you guys have each other to support each other because sometimes it is very difficult that even, you know, I've heard of a lot of marriages having problems, especially if they've gone through the treatment together um, where one person had it and the spouse has to support them just because of the toll it takes on the relationship. That It's great that you guys, you know, have an understanding for each other and don't ever sell yourself short. I know it's like, you know, take your own advice, but, you know, people do make choices on who they, you know, end up with and you guys will be fine. I've, I've met right. you guys, hung out with you guys. You guys are good to go. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, I, I, my mom's probably, the, my mom's actually been the one who's been really supportive, but, which my parents have been great, considering their cultural background and stuff and having to deal with, the, you know, the possibility of never having kids. And, you know, she was, because I come from a really conservative Mexican family, and, you know, my parents were like, you know, there's, like, tons of kids out there that need to be adopted, or, you know, there's always, you know, fertility treatment they can try. And they're so open about it, which is great. And she was always, you know, 
I was telling her, you know, like, what if you get stressed out? And she's always reassuring me, like, people who've never even had cancer sometimes can't have kids, and you know, and they have to deal with the same thing. And it was so weird because I never thought, like, I knew about it, but I didn't really apply it to myself. So it was kind of, kind of nice for like my mom to be (laughs) like realistic about when I'm completely being irrational. And one thing my doctor always told me um, while I was going through treatment and the uncertainty of not knowing my fertility situation would be on the other side of chemotherapy. My doctor said, you don't have to carry a baby in your room to start a family. Right. There are other ways to start families. And that's the biggest thing with having a stupid cancer group around is that that's probably been the biggest thing is people being reassuring about that. And, you know, and it's, it's hard because, you know, aside from the fertility, there's just constant stresses. You know, um, you guys were talking about the testing and how, you know, people are jumping to conclusions on, you know, should they just do it? And, you know, on top of that, I have all these other things that are going on. Um, my great aunt was actually diagnosed at, she was 28 with uh, breast cancer, and this was, like, in the 70s, and she survived. And then uh, my aunt, my mom's sister, same size as her, like, they, she was diagnosed with cancer at 38, and then uh, she passed away, unfortunately. Then, of course, my grandmother gets a really rare form of ovarian cancer uh, just two years ago. And then, like, we have this one aunt who's, I'm convinced, is a hypochondriac. And she's just obsessive over it. And so she wanted to actually do that same testing. And she calls my mom and freaks her out. And then, you know, I have to get it tested. So then I kind of get stressed out about it. And it's funny because the fertility thing will kind of knock me on my ass, like, whenever I think about it. But as far as, like, the testing stuff, I've kind of used that as a moment to, like, empower myself and, like, educate my family because I feel like sometimes they don't know exactly what's going on. And then, you know, just to try to educate them about it, especially my mom because that's where I get my worry, you know, I guess my worry thing from. So, but, yeah, it's it's A mother in in passing along stress to children? You are the most (laughs) Jewish Mexican I've ever known in my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, we have like a minute left, Erica. I just wanted okay. to ask you one last question because sure. you've been involved literally since day one. You've been a cornerstone of the growth of this brand. Um, could you sum up quickly for us how you feel to, to look back and see all the progress? that? I, and we say progress, you know, progress can mean nothing or anything, but there's really been some progress uh, in the last five years. What would you say to the young adult diagnosed today that, that they would not have been able to have been told five years ago? Oh, man. Things, my favorite thing to say is things get so much better. I mean, like, I, that's the only way I can put it. Like, five years ago, when we had this, like, I, I really had to be patient. You know, I went through middle school, high school, and dealing with, like, body issues and stuff. And right now, like, there's so much... There's just so much that's changed. Um, I was telling someone, like, you know, middle school, it was miserable because my hair was short. And, like, now it's, like, the coolest thing ever. Like, you can do everything right. with short hair. And, like, you know, it just it just gets so much better. You just, you know, find, you know, look it up, find people. They're, we're out there. You know, we can, we're out there and we want you, you know, to be a part of our group and we'll be there for you. Is the best I can put it. I'll be there for cancer, you. Help. Making everything suck a little less. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, Long thank time you coming. For having me. And uh, you know what? Better that you're on 2013 than 2007 because no one was listening back then. So <laughs> I know, right? Like no one remembers Jason's, right?
Who? <laughs> who? Wait, wait, who, who? Never mind. I know. Okay. That's what I said. Old news. Old news. Well, thank you so much, Erica. <laughs> you, Erica. Take care of yourself. Thanks and we'll for talk having to you me, soon. guys. Erica Mallott, everybody. Thank you. Adios, Minovia. Adios, mi amor. All right, now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Kenny? All right, Matthew. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something to be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. We have a lot of meetups coming up in Denver, Rochelle Park, New Jersey, Astoria, New York, San Clemente, California, L.A., and more L.A., and more L.A. Really? Wow. A lot of L.A., a lot of Denver. Check out events.supercancer.org to learn more about the individual events and attend them. Gesundheit. Thank you. (laughs) All right. The Stupid Cancer Forums have nearly 5,000 members. This is a premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Visit stupidcancerforums.org and sign up with one click through Facebook. Matthew, head on over to the Stupid Cancer Store. It's got a lot of awesome products, a lot of awesome Stupid Cancer swag and merch. StupidCancerStore.org. All right, and that is your Stupid Cancer News. They love it. All right, I'm excited. I'm excited for this show. This show's been a long time coming. Um, We have three amazing folks joining us for the uh, second half of the show. Um, Annie, why don't you... Take, take sure. On. We have a trifecta of writers. We have Lonnie Horn. She's a professor at Vanderbilt University. As a social scientist, she looks at the complex and often fraught interaction between people and institutions. When she was 38, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And joining her also is Eamon Comrade, a Ewing sarcoma survivor who is a blogger for Huffington Post and also has a personal blog. And rounding it out is Jody Shager. She's a writer and cancer advocate for more than 25 years of experience in PR and communications and healthcare, science, and education. Following her own diagnosis with locally banned breast cancer in 1998, she has since devoted her energy to helping other survivors. So welcome, Jody, Lonnie, and Eamon. Good evening. Hello, folks. Hi. Hey. Hello. Hi. Well, I got to tell you, this is there could not be a better time for this show mm-hmm. on self-expression and dealing with being pissed off and knowing the right ways to do things and the wrong way to do things. And I, I say that because um, Jody and I recently did a, a blogger conference together about right ways to do things and wrong ways to do things. And Lonnie and I have known each other for a long time through that medium also. And I stumbled upon him. Am I pronouncing your name right? Is it Eamon or Eamon? Eamon. Eamon. Okay. Close enough. I, <laughs> hey, i got to try. People uh-huh. call me Matthew, so, you know, i got to ask. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, I stumbled upon you on the Huffington Post, on the Generation Y uh, thing that they're building, and and it's such there's so much content, there's so much information, there's so many haters, there's so many good and great things out there. How do you make sense of it? How do you sort of take all of your interest, your rage, what you want to say, how you want to say it, who you want to say it to, what platform do you want to say it on, and get that out there in a meaningful way and build a following and, and, and become an opinion leader? within your disease. And I think the three of you have done an amazing job not just defining how to do that, but making yourselves so well known and, and followed uh just through good writing and, and good articulation. So uh with that said, I I just want to start quickly with Jody because you and you and I are Mishbucha at this point, uh, having <laughs> having gone through um now two uh workshops together. 
Absolutely. Uh, on this. And I was so impressed with how you were. I, I think I joked in that video that it's always a great event when I do the the the, the least amount of speaking. Yeah. So you took the that lead on that, funny. and I just like you to talk about how you got started in this. Take a few minutes, then we'll hit the other, hit the other uh, folks up. Sure, sure, sure. Well, one, um, I'm going to jump to the present from the past a little bit and how I got started. Um, I was a 15-year survivor and recently was diagnosed with metastatic disease. So, I mean, this puts me in a different chapter and doing the same thing that I did before, but from a new perspective. And I think, well, not that I think, I know. I know how I make sense of any of these uh, this experience is by writing about it. I have to go find the information, and then I have to try to describe what that information means in the real world. And that ex- exploration of cancer, the experience, how it in, you know impacts me and others, that's what really um, makes it bearable. You know, it 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 helps it helps me find a, a wider purpose. So obviously you were you've been writing uh in the past absolutely in a, in a certain vein and now that you've been sort of brought back into Cancerland right is it going to change what you want to talk about how you want to talk about it and how you influence people that are early looking to you for ways to do that You know I I'm sure it will just simply by the experience of you know possibly being ill like uh down the road right now i'm 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 quite well but um you know i wrote in public relations i'm a writer by nature i'm curious by nature and i love science so you put all those things together and add with that a huge component of family members affected by cancer and it just you know, I found the blogging platform. I started writing. I started talking to people on social media. I enjoyed that engagement. And here we are. It just grew, like, organically. So let's turn that back over to Lonnie now. Um, Lonnie, you, sure. you've had been hit by cancer twice through right. the t- tragic loss of your brother and then your own breast cancer. And you actually have gone through, I, I, from my perspective, almost an identity change. Because yeah. when I first met you, you were a chemo babe, and you built up an amazing following and reputation around that attitude. And yeah. I'd just love to have you talk a little bit about how that all got started, and then we'll hit up uh, Eamon. Sure. Um, so, like Jody, I'm someone, I mean, I'm kind of a nerd by nature. Anything <laughs> that goes on, part of my way of getting control over it is by learning everything I can. And then I think because the cancer is so traumatic, and especially like two years after losing my brother, I was diagnosed. Um, So I was pretty pissed off. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot of um, ways ways that people whose own initiation into cancer land comes with their own diagnosis, that had already been kind of, that had been taken away from me. Mm -hmm. So my own entry into the whole process was... um, not very innocent, um, and I think that that gave me sort of a unique vantage point, and the combination of that and that the way I make myself feel better mm-hmm. is by helping other people 
it just mm-hmm. sort of made blogging a natural and social media a natural way for me to put together the intense way that I try to gather all the information I can and look at things from every angle with my sort of outrage at the situation with my real need to um, connect with other people in a similar situation. And that's just sort of how the whole thing came together for me. And, Eamon, you're Canadian, and we forgive you for that. But you <laughs> happen to have, But you're a postdoc. You're a postdoc fellow in chemistry at the University of British Columbia. That That's pretty intense to be that ingrained in science and then have to be dealing with science for your health and your, yeah. your livelihood and your thriving that's an amazing perspective to have, at least from my ignorant point of view. What's it been like for you? Um, it was a really big shock, uh, as I think everybody is when I first started, because I had just started working uh, as a postdoctoral fellow, finished my PhD, mm. and then uh, just went in kind of for some routine maintenance, as you do, and uh, was kind of given the bad news. And uh, immediately, you know, like your head starts racing, you know, I work with uh, chemicals every day, and to be being told different types of drugs and medication that you're going to be on, knowing what they are ahead of time um, does really put a bit of an interesting spin on it because, you know, you're you're aware, you know, you see these examples, you see other researchers talk about these types of things, and you know, you're you're all of a sudden it's you know it's it's not a mystery, it's it's going to hit you, and even if you don't really have a full understanding like i didn't know a lot of younger people or a lot of people in general actually who had gone through cancer i've been very fortunate in that way it uh it immediately i think sent a really hard shock uh through my system and jody when you went when you were going through this whole thing yourself you Mm -hmm. you know it was 1998 that was before the land of twitter and facebook right before you know, that was part of the days of AOL chat rooms. And right. No, that's exactly what right. dial-up internet. So, yeah. you know, tell us a little bit how you got started. When, to be perfectly honest, your resources sure. were kind of limited in those in back in 1998. Not that it was like the golden ages. I mean, no, the internet didn't no. exist, but it's just not like we did it have is now. Yeah. Right. yeah, we had um, electricity, we had color we television, had we had phone lines, and we had email. We right. had, you know, a lot of uh, information was coordinated via email with family members and friends. It wasn't as simple, of course, as as, as jumping on Facebook. And um, you could research, uh, but not to the degree that I can pull up academic papers from PubMed mm-hmm. now. I had a friend who was a PhD who helped me find some studies. But honestly, at that time, everyone who had breast cancer was carrying around this giant book by Susan Luff. Mm-hmm. You know, and right. no one is yeah. carrying around books now. No. You know, they're carrying around. Oh, well, I uh, might be, Jody, but I'm Well, nerd. yes, I am, but you and I are geeks. <laughs> we said this. You know, it's true. Yeah. We're, we're, to- we're totally geeks. Um, we're all for geeks. The most in good part. company. Yeah, we're in good Totally, totally. <laughs> so for the most part, I started getting involved, you know, on a local level. Um, but it was really the advent of social media when I first started blogging um, that helped me find or to solidify my voice and platform. It's like all these other experiences when social media came into being just worked incredibly well for me. Um, 
So, you know, if we were still back in the glacial times, uh, I never would have met you guys. Mm-hmm. That's true. Right? Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, it's just so weird to think about. There are so many people I'm connected with. They're all fabulous. I never would have known them if it had not been for this medium. I sometimes feel like social media lets you sift through and find your people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jody's, Jody's one of my people. You yeah, know, we're people. Jody mm-hmm. and I found each other early on. Um, mm-hmm. I don't even know how. But I don't it, We were just talking one day. Twitter. It was Twitter, you yeah. know, and um, we you just you find if you connect with somebody like that, strongly online that, you know, that often carries over. There's a reason for it. So it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of amazing, that part of it. So Jody's been a, a big sister to me a lot, in a lot of ways through this process, and I absolutely would not have met her. Um, no. No. Without... I mean, my life would have been deprived. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. I mean, we wouldn't have been on the panels together, right, and had, right. A, had a fun time and um, helped each other articulate things that we've experienced because I think mm-hmm. that's part of the dynamic. Yeah, you guys exactly. make me better, and I hope vice versa. Right, but you, we're looking at we're looking at the three of you coming into the content world in oncology or, or e patient the universe of empowered patients uh, mm-hmm. at three different points of of, uh, of of sort of civilization, if you would. Jody came in in nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, Lonnie, I'm you grandma. came in around like what, 2006, 2007, right. I suppose. 2008, 2008. 2008. But you know, my brother, my brother had a blog that was part of like why it even occurred to you oh, that was a good way to. Okay. Yeah. yeah, a live journal blog that gives you an idea. Live of journal. The era. Mm-hmm. Right, and live Amy comes journal. in when Huffington Post has a huge ecosystem for young adults now. So ever, I think yeah. we've all been paving the way for mm-hmm. each other. Yeah. To to build this in in kind of this this interesting harmony that we didn't even know existed. Mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. be, to have that platform, but but I think what 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 the common theme is is not when you have the opportunity to put stuff on what platform. It's what you actually put on that platform. What are you saying? Mm-hmm. So I was hoping each of you could take a moment to talk about you know how you decided to sift through what you were really upset about and actually because you all write so well. Do you have writing backgrounds? Did you learn trial by fire? How is it that you choose to say what you say when you say it? And especially, you know, Jody, having relapsed at this point with this new diagnosis, you must be seething with rage to an extent that you want to say a lot of things that you didn't ever maybe have to say or used to say a long time ago. Well, actually, kind of right now I'm still a little bit in the muted mode, like coming out of Shock Central. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not real angry. I'm been spending time just trying to stay calm and look at the information, uh, look at choices. But content-wise, for me, one thing that has been number one from the get-go is to uh, have accurate information about cancer. I really, and survivorship, and all the survivorship issues that were not discussed, that people still don't understand, um, pointing out resources, I mean, that is something that just catches me on fire. Now, if I get angry, that's those are the kinds of things that I, I get angry about, that people can't find or don't have the tools, you know, um, to find information about cancer that they need when they're diagnosed. And so even you... Oh, sure, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I was just going to say um, it's really important to that I 
make sure, you know, what I'm writing is accurate. I fact check it, et cetera. Yeah, it's all very, very important these days. And Eamon, when you wrote one of my favorite Generation Y columns, things I was told during chemotherapy. Yeah. Want to talk a little bit about that? It's something yeah. that every single person who has ever gone through treatment can relate to. So why don't you tell our listeners about, you know, pitching this column to the Huffington Post and th- what you wrote about, why you wanted to write about it. Well, when I started writing this this type of article, I mean, one of the things when I was going through treatment was I didn't do a really good job or spend a lot of time at really processing what was going on. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel great most of the time. Um, I had a lot of chemotherapy, which didn't do mm-hmm. my brain any good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I started writing this um, as kind of a reflection to myself about some of the things that really had been said to me. Um, you know, now that I have the ability to actually really process it, really think through um, some of the things. And it's it's kind of weird when you look back at some of them because, you know, people aren't trying to necessarily be mean or hurtful. They're trying to be complimentary uh, with some of these. Like when they say, you know, oh, you know, you're bald. That's a good look. You know, that's fine. But then when your eyebrows fall out, your eyelashes fall out, you know, it's more obvious uh, that you're sick, you don't look good, you mm-hmm. don't feel good, um, you know, and I started writing this, and uh, the big thing for me was, you know, I didn't know who to talk to about some of these things, because a lot of these things I could say to you are from people who generally care about you, mm-hmm. and, you know, they're not trying, like I so said, they're not trying to be hurtful, they're not trying to be harmful, they're trying to build you up at maybe a time when that's not really possible. And so I just kind of started writing, started kind of thinking about it. Um, You know, and and for me, it was just kind of looking forward. You know, I don't know if I'm going to get sick again or not. It's one thing that every Mm -hmm. cancer survivor kind of lives with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe it'll it'll make people think maybe a little more about what they're going to say. And, you know, for me personally, you know, I don't mind being told that, you know, hey, you don't look right, you look like garbage, you you know, I feel like garbage. Mm-hmm. You know, having people acknowledge that uh, is really important to me. And then, you know, moving on from there, I think I ended that up with, you know, as much as some of that stuff might have hurt at the, the time or hurt afterwards, um, you know, so long as I keep getting good news uh, on checkups, mm-hmm. I can deal with it. And, I just want other people to know that if they they have to deal with some of these similar things or, you know, I've read many articles from people, unfortunately, about where, you know, they've had hurtful things to them or, you know, Mm -hmm. get over it or, you know, whatever, that, you know, you're really not alone in this. And although some of it does carry forward, that, uh, you know, there are people out there who really do understand what you're going through. So it's interesting because both Jody and Eamon talking about writing after the fact, I really yeah. wrote my way through treatment. Yes, you and did. And part of the reason was because I was given a 10% chance of survival if the chemotherapy didn't work. And I've got three young children. They were all under 10 years old at the time of my diagnosis. And my youngest was two. He was too young for me to have any real conversation about what was going on. I mean, um, and I didn't know if I was going to make it. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason I started writing is because I needed to document my experience. I needed my kids to know 
everything I did to try to live mm-hmm. in case it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that was not a hypothetical to me, given that my brother had died two years prior. Um, So I wrote from that place, which is a place Mm -hmm. of kind of passionate desperation in a way. Mm -hmm. And um, through my posts, I kind of figured out what my topic was based on what people, what resonated with people. And what I realized is what I was talking about, which is thematically related to the research I do, was the social and emotional aspects of cancer, which Mm -hmm. really there isn't a lot written about that. And, you know, no, even yeah. you're talking about, you That's know, right. um, touches on that stupid cancer. That's a big part of the reason for the organization. Um, so, you know. We're the ones I, that are I writing about found it. My, I found my kindred spirits, but I was I was writing in real time about, mm-hmm. with with my training as a social scientist, I, I joked that it was field work in cancer land, you know, my, my <laughs> accidental field work. Um, so, you know. I did bring that skill set, Matthew. You asked like what we brought to it. I mean, I mm-hmm. I was trained as an ethnographer, so going in foreign cultures and trying to make sense of them. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Lonnie, is a... sorry if I can hop in, Lonnie. To your point, yeah. I think the way it wasn't just that you were writing in triage. Mm-hmm. It's the embodiment of you, the attitude you chose to take. It was almost there was a certain degree of shock value. To, yeah, well, your avatar was. to begin with. You, you, I think you were exactly. like in like like lace stockings with a whip or something yeah. like that. You're like exactly. cancer's well, ass. I had this. I had the same thing happen that Eamon did, where you know people would say this awkward thing, mm. and I can take compassion. I can take love. I can't really take pity very well. Mm-hmm. And actually, yeah. the day that I took that picture was um, it was my fifth chemo. And my friend was about to drive me there, and I said, you know, let's stop at the sex shop. Let's take a funny picture. I have an idea. I'm totally bald at this point. And I put on that that leather thing, and she starts taking pictures of me posing in these different ways. We actually got kicked out. They tried to confiscate the camera. And that chemo actually was the chemo that almost killed me. I had an allergic reaction to the chemo. So I kind of have a feeling. It was my fifth chemo. I had an allergic reaction to Taxotere. Mm-hmm. They had to like inject me with steroids and yeah, that anyway. one almost got me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I kind of had this feeling like I, I remember before that chemo, I said to my doctor, I think the chemo is going to kill me because I just I could tell my body was not tolerating it, and so I think it was kind of that whole picture was kind of my fuck you, like I, you know I don't I'm not going to like let this crush me. So it was really a fighting moment and a sort of mischievous moment and. It cracked my friend and I up so much, and her husband is an architect and has all this graphic software, so he turned it into this, like, comic book icon, um, and that just became my avatar. And it still is on my blog. Well, let me, let me turn the conversation over back to Amy for a second, because, again, we, we talked about following in footsteps and progress. You entered the cancer world recently to the point now where the Huffington Post has an entire section completely dedicated just to the young adult voice. Yeah, how how did you get in there, uh, and have you seen a huge response? I mean, obviously, you know, I found you on there. People are finding you on there. What um wh- what has been the response you've received by having this voice? It's been really great. I actually started writing just a personal blog. Um, one of my a lady who's become a, a really great friend and great supporter of mine. Her name's Barana. She got me to start writing because I do an event. Um, called the Ride to Conquer Cancer, 
uh, this is my second year doing it. It's a big bike ride uh, from Vancouver to Seattle where you raise money uh, for local cancer agencies. And uh, she had known that I was struggling a bit with how to really get some of my feelings or some of the things that had really built up over time. And she said, just why I start writing about it. So I started doing um, the blog. And, you know, before you know it, you can, you know, it's easy to monitor how much viewership you're getting on these things uh, these days. And it started to build and build. And uh, then she kind of helped me out with, uh, you know, there were some postings with the Huffington Post. And it was, you know, maybe we should take a try at this if you want to reach a, a bigger audience. The blog had seemed to be going um, pretty well. There was lots of positive response. So much of the, you know, yeah, that sucks, and yeah, I know what you're going through. I've gone through this too, or I've had this really crappy side effect or really crappy experience. Um, you know, and it it just became a big kind of breathing out, you know, like you're just like finally like, it's all able to come out now. So a lot of the things that I couldn't say came out and then even through through emails and contacts uh people contacted me through the huffington post articles um through twitter through the blog um the response for me has been great because it's allowed me to connect with other people who are going through similar or different uh types of cancers different problems and from what i've seen it's really been a great support network and it's really become you know, I'm I'm very thankful to have gotten sick in a time when things like social media, like mm-hmm. you mentioned, the Huffington Post having this huge section, already developed for people like me who happen to fall in into this situation, and it really, uh, quite honestly, has made a lot of the the after effects that I necessarily didn't anticipate. I was one of those naive people thinking, I'm done chemo, I'm done radiation, I'm done with this, I'm ready to be done with it not really thinking how long it was going to carry on. And it's been a, probably the best support network I've had. And uh, I know a lot of other people rely on, on these types of things too. And to be able to contribute to that has been really great and really rewarding. So I want to go around and each ask each of you a little bit about privacy. And this is one of the issues that I always find important. And we talked about this in the writing workshop in Las Vegas at OMG. And one of the things, especially that I did not think about when I first started, I wrote my own blog, I wrote columns, and, you know, went pretty public. I mean, obviously, I'm on the show every week, but I did go very public with my experience with cancer. But one of the things that's frustrating is sometimes it can become you, and it can sometimes you lose sight that, you're not just a person who had cancer. You're also a regular human being who had other interests and personal things like your personality that make you unique. You just happen to have suffered from this disease. So, you know, there's the Google effect and that people may have heard of you or talked about you or shared your story, whether it be on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. So, you know, each of you had cancer at different times. So why don't we start with you, Jody, about, mm-hmm. you know, the experience that you have with cancer and, you know, if you ever felt a privacy issue um, you know, how you've dealt with going public for all these years with your disease. Sure. You know, I think a lot of uh, my earlier posts, I'd had some some distance and was reflecting and reporting on various issues. So 
the writing voice, my writing voice was established and it felt comfortable. I mean, I did not feel vulnerable at the end of writing. Now, I, I really think that's that's changed currently. I I wrote a post, you know, announcing um, this diagnosis, and I've, it's not that I've been frozen since then, but it's like, how do I want, you know, how much do I want to to talk about this, and how much uh, am I comfortable disclosing? So this is gonna, this next part is kind of be a work in progress. Uh, I think we'll, I know how much I'm going to be learning about, you know, metastatic disease and how much it varies from individual to, to individual. And then, um, you know, kind of, so it's kind of like open mic. Uh, and I'm not really 100% sure um, which way it's going to go. Probably make a lot of yeah um so privacy for me was complicated and not complicated it was not complicated because i didn't have to worry about like stigma and that affecting my profession a lot of young adults are building their professional identity i was mm -hmm. a tenured professor so that helped um mm -hmm. i also have a nickname that's different than my professional name so when people Google me professionally, they find my papers, my academic papers. When they Google me as Lonnie, they um, they come up with all my cancer stuff. Um, the other privacy thing that I had to think a lot about was my family um, because I wanted to share what it was parenting through cancer, but I also realized that my children have a online future and, um, you know, so my husband and I sort of talked about what we were comfortable with. He didn't want me posting a lot of pictures of my kids. Anytime, mm -hmm. especially with my older ones, if I was going to tell a story or anecdote, I would check with them first. Is this okay with you? Um, so I I was very mindful about that because um, it's one thing, it, when, you, when you're a mother of three, your story is very intertwined with your kids' stories. And... Um, that's that was a big issue for me to navigate. So the question then, when you switched from the chemo babe, I guess oh, we'll yeah. call it just an avatar, mm -hmm. what, what was the rationale behind that? Well, it was sort of what um, you were describing earlier, that, that I didn't want to be pigeonholed. I mean, I had met some really awesome knitters online, for example, um, and I noticed that some people would follow, would not follow me because my nickname on both the knitting uh, social network site Ravelry and my Twitter name were about cancer. And not all knitters really want to think about cancer. Mm. And, you know, this is one example. So I was engaging with people beyond um, the cancer community, and I wanted to have a, a way in. So if you look at my Twitter biography, it still mentions that I'm a blogger at Hemobrite Babe. I'm a cancer advocate. But I didn't want this to be my leading identity. I actually wrote a blog post explaining myself because it was kind of a, it was a big kind of ground shifting moment for me in my Oh, I was, I was kind of like process. let down a little bit. I'm like, where'd she go? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you can still go to my can still go to my website and see my my crazy picture. People people say to me, "Where did you find that?" And I say, "It's me." Right. And they go, "It is." <laughs> they think you can Google that. I don't <laughs> Anyway. So, Eamon, uh, you are postdoc. You have your PhD. 
there's reputation, there's recognition. You know, uh, what is it that you do or do not want the world to know about you? And you've clearly chosen the largest global platform to talk about it. <laughs> your, what are your thoughts on privacy in your career and moving forward? Well, I think one of the biggest things I try to do, because um, obviously, like you said, with when you start blogging, everything you put out there, people are going to see. You know, I always try to think, is this something I'm okay with my current employer or potential employer, uh, you know, going to be okay with reading? And one of the things for me where I am a postdoctoral fellow and I'm still building my career is that your name is basically everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, can, you can't separate yourself. Um, I work in uh, the field of chemistry, which in Canada is a very mm-hmm. tight community. You know, people know what I'm doing, who I work for, um, you know, and I've made a lot of relationships over the year. And the big thing I think I try to show is that, yes, it has affected me like it would anybody else, but I'm, it's not going to define me. It's going to be it's something that I'll, I continue to work with and try to, you know, manage every little little thing that comes along with. I'm very in, in a very fortunate position where I have a boss that really understands it and has allowed me to do what I need to do um, with regards to if I need to go in for an appointment or, or something like that. Um, but I, I think the big thing is because cause it's out there. You know, people knew when I got sick, I had to take a year off work. You know, it wasn't a, I was missing national conferences that I don't normally miss. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that I'm getting better and that, you know, I was, you know, good before and I'm going to be good afterwards. Um, I might not be exactly the same as I was before, but I'm still, you know, someone who's going to do a good job, someone who's going to work hard, and someone who's going to put every effort forward that they can. And, you know, traits like that don't change, I don't think, when you get a disease like cancer. You know, there are some ways you view things differently, but I think some of your real core things don't change. They might just get more pronounced or a little less... uh, you know, predominant, but... Damon, have you had people, like, colleagues come up to you? Because I've had this happen. I'm curious if you have, too. I've had colleagues come up to me at conferences, and I'm assuming they're going to want to talk about my scholarship, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I found your blog. I love it so much. And they'll... (laughs) Have you had that happen yet? I've had a few people come up uh, and, you know, want to talk about it. Um, Uh But... I'm comfortable with everything I've written, so when it's when yeah, I put it too. out there, I'm o- I'm okay yeah. talking about it. Yeah, and right. I think that's one of the big things you have to do. You don't want to look back in three weeks and be like, "Oh man, I don't want people thinking or knowing about this." That's that's particular. Right. That's that's exactly right. You have you have a kind of, or I do, and I think the longer you write, the more this tunes. There's an inner editor that's bad. Okay, that's the one that keeps you from being authentic. But if you are honest emotionally, that authenticity comes through in your prose. Um, yeah. And it, it's so important. You don't have to be saying anything or disclosing anything that may embarrass you to be authentic. Yeah. Which really... Yeah, I uh, I know for me, like, anything I write for, like, the Huff Post in particular, uh-huh. I'll write it, I'll sit on it for a week, Go back and look at it again. And think. Yeah. sometimes, you know, you do have a bad day where you're like, oh, I just want to write this down and scream and yell and punch a pillow or whatever. Right. And and then, you know, that's not the day 
that you mm-hmm. want to be submitting your, <laughs> your, no. your articles and, and those kind of things. But you can get a lot of constructive stuff out of them. And uh, I've found that, yeah, so long as, so long as I'm okay with mm-hmm. what I've written, then I'm completely fine talking about it with people. Hey, yeah, folks, we're almost yeah. out of time here. I know what? Annie wanted to have one more round of questions before we have to wrap. So I wanted to ask real quick, I guess we could start with Eamon first. You last word on that one, first word on this one. What's your advice to people who are, you know, whether they're in treatment or just diagnosed or 20 years out of treatment, what would your be advice for them with starting writing, whether it be a personal blog, Huffington Post, whatever the medium might be, what would your advice be to them? I would say just start writing your thoughts down. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff I write and a lot of the stuff that has developed over the last six, eight months for me could be a few short sentences here, a few short sentences there, and then they build. It might remind you about something. Could be good, could be bad. You know, depends on what what way it goes. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you don't have to show anybody right away. And if you decide you don't want to show, that's great. That's and if right. you decide that you do want to, that's great too. It's a really personal decision what you want to put out there. Um, but if you have a private journal and that's all you want to do for writing, then, you know, that's perfect too. It's whatever works for you and whatever mm-hmm. makes you really, really happy and with what you've done. Jody? Oh, I really... I really like what you said, um, and I, I also add to that that not everybody has to blog. Um, I assume that most most bloggers love to write right. uh, and read. Uh, both they they go hand in hand. You have writing, you have readers. Um, it's not a way to get rich. Uh, it's there's a lot of things that it isn't. I think uh, when it first started, you'd see people like Pioneer Woman go, "Oh, I want to be her." And that's not really how it works. Um, so choose your medium. You know, if it's a blog or taking photos, just some way to express your experience of cancer. Whether it's a mm-hmm. blog, your photos, you paint, you write poetry, um, you talk all night long to your friends. There just has to be some way that you find uh, to express yourself. Yeah. And finally, Lonnie. Tell me the question again. I got so enwrapped in what Damon and Jody were saying, I forgot the actual question. It was Candace or Cree for American Idol. (laughs) I wouldn't have a clue who those people are. (laughs) Yeah, me neither. Now, the question was um, advice for, for new survivors that may want to enter the world of blogging or writing and, and yeah. expressing themselves in this I think, daunting I, age yeah. of, of crazy. Okay. I think that finding um, your community, like just Jody was talking yeah. about before, is important because is, blogging is a dialogue. It is, it's right. different than a journal in that you have readers and you respond to other people's writing. Um I think that's a good thing. I think finding your topic, finding your angle, and that's kind of – Finding your angle and your topic is kind of getting to know yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, beyond disease profile, like what is this experience to you? What is it touching on in you mm-hmm. and in your life? And what's, what resonances does it have? Because that's sort of your unique perspective. Um, 
you know, we, we have, Jody and I have friends in our community who, like, it's really a family disease, and that's really a struggle that they have to contend with, and they, they write from that perspective in, mm-hmm. in their work. Um, again, me, I'm social, emotional, and, uh, you know, I wasn't going to even write a blog post about Angelina Jolie, but then I realized that I was hearing something that I hadn't seen anybody write about that, that mm-hmm. connected with my angle of, you know, what is what is the emotions here? What are the emotions of mastectomies? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think knowing your topic, that gives you a voice that builds your audience, puts you in a conversation. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And change, change. hopefully you, you widen the perspective. You are providing a way for people to look at an experience that they've never occurred to them before. Because, right. one, they were either afraid to listen uh, or no one had put it in language that they understood. Right. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I would say that the three of you are the best excuse ever to have us go over time. <laughs> but we all, <laughs> so, and, and obviously, this is a conversation we could keep going on and on and on and have a show yeah. every week about this topic, yeah. and we certainly want to keep repeating it because it's so valuable. But I, I can't thank you guys enough for taking the time to come on the show, oh, share your stories. You. Uh, really, Thanks for having so, us. So, um, Jody, you are, you are at Jody MS. Lonnie, what's your Twitter? Um, I'm at Lonisia, L-A-N-I-S-I-A. My blog is chemobabe.com. And Eamon, your uh, Twitter handle? It's at EamonDC, so E-A-M-O-N-N-D-C. There you go. Well, thank you so much. Good luck, and uh, we will be in touch. Check you guys on on Twitter. Sounds great. You guys are the best. Thanks so much. Jody Lonnie Horn, Eamon Conrad. Thank you both, everybody. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. I love these shows. I do, too. And I, I, you know, try to keep away my own personal thoughts. But one thing I have to say, and I don't mean this to discourage, you know, I was one of those people who, if I had feelings, I just would, like, type word vomit and then hit publish on Tumblr. Um, it's really hard for me to read my blog because I wrote it when I was a treatment, when I was diagnosed, and that's kind of how I let the world know I had was diagnosed with cancer. And it's really actually painful for me to read it. Um, it just reminds me of, you know, all the – part of it is good. I'm glad I did it because it brings me back and reminds me of the feelings that I had while I was going through everything. But at the same time, it's really difficult to relive everything because it, yes. it brings it back, and I could, it makes me remember how shitty I felt during chemo, how scared I was when I was diagnosed, how horrible it was when I had to lose all my hair. It was just, you know, in the moment, it's you do you're doing what you have to do to survive, and Correct. you're just kind of like, well, I w- I don't want to die, so. I have to lose my breasts and I have to lose my hair and I have to feel like crap for six, seven months. But it's really hard to read it, especially being on the other side where I'm feeling pretty okay and starting to move on with my life from, you know, cancer is still obviously a significant part of my life and it will be for a long, long time. But at the same time, it's not, I don't, you know, I feel good. I'm able to do stuff and I'm able to like eat food and according to my doctor, drink too much. And, right. <laughs> you know, I'm getting back to where I used to be before. It was, you know, before this all happened to me. It's tough, but you know what? I'm glad I did it because it's there for me to read. 
when, whether it be someone who's diagnosed, who wants to know information, it reminds me of what it was, and plus with chemo brain, some of it is like such a haze to me, what everything, you know, what my feelings were, what I was experiencing. So it's uh, very, it's good, and it's also very difficult for me to read it. This show is almost more therapeutic for you than our guests. Yeah, you know, I I kind of dealt with these feelings, I guess, in Vegas when I did the um, when I did the workshop, the writing workshop. I kind of dealt with it, but I started dealing with the feelings when it was like I sometimes by going so public, you forget how many people are reading it and how like people yeah. can share it and mm-hmm. send everybody. That sometimes when I went out, and granted, when you're a female, you're wearing a wig, and you feel like sometimes people are staring at you, they look at you weird. Sometimes I felt like I was walking around with a tumor on my face because the way people would look at me, and then people would say things like, oh, I read your blog, blah, blah, or people would message me, I'm reading your blog and crying right now. And that was just, you know, I wanted people to understand what I was going through, but at the same time, I felt like cancer, it was like cancer was preceding me. Like I was, I'd be walking towards people and it'd be like a tumor was walking in front of me. Like I was walking a tumor on a leash almost. I don't know how to explain it, but I just felt like, I felt like my whole life was cancer. Well, it's, it's not as bad anymore. And now you're just hosting a cancer show. Now it's just yeah. Monday now night. I just, now, <laughs> I, just now I just talk about all the time right. with you guys. Yeah, exactly. But. Well, again, I think this is a great show. It was. Um, and, uh, all that jazz. And writing is very important for the young adult movement. It's a very, Unique and special. We need your voice. That it's a right. very it's a very unique and special way for us to all share experiences, to make noise, to get noticed, all, by whether it be legislators, doctors, oncologists, drug companies, whoever it may be. It's important for our age group, diseases, all of the above, to get noticed and get things done and get real change to happen in our country. Alrighty. Well, with that, it is now time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray! I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, our 266th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking you sick at Stupid Cancer. We'd like to thank our guests tonight, Eric Amalot, Jody Sugar, Lonnie Horn, and Eamon Conrad. We'll be off next Monday for Memorial Day, but we will be returning on Monday, June 3rd. Join us then to talk about Stupid Cancer Canada. Yes, Canadians get cancer, too, and it sucks just as much for their young adults despite a different healthcare system. We will be speaking with Jean Lamantia, Don Cleary, Deb Bridgman, and filmmaker Mikey Lang to share their stories and talk about maple syrup and what's that coffee company again? I don't know. The Montreal Canadiens. Tim Hortons. Oh, Tim Hortons yeah. and the Montreal Canadiens. Yeah. Eh? And the Mounties. All right, folks. If you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.org or check out the archives at stupidcancershow.org. Remember, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the Chemodex, on behalf of Kenny Kane, Andy Goodman, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great week, and we'll see you back here in two weeks live at 8 p.m. Happy Memorial Day, everybody. Good night. Bye-bye.